Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. like a company town we lived in so the whole the whole town lived or died based upon whether there were wars going on and we were selling weapons welcome to the strap 4 podcast i'm paul floyd there's a book that came across my desk recently that caught my attention. Uh, here at Stratfor, being a military analyst, we look at weapons all the time. Um, and so when I saw A Girl's Guide to Missiles, uh, I sort of stopped and got very interested and started to read it. And as I went through the book, um, you know, it's, it's very clearly a, a coming-of-age story and growing up in a very unique place. And so while it has an idyllic setting at some levels, um, it's also about growing up on a naval station called China Lake Naval Weapons Center. And I have that author with me here today, who is Karen Piper, who wrote A Girl's Guide to Missiles in 2018. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, Karen Piper. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, actually a big fan of Stratfor. I've been using it for years just because I've known of it as the uh, very reliable source of geopolitical information. So I go there to fact check my own information on your website often and read your articles. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. That's good to hear. I did not know what to expect when I picked up your book. Uh, to be honest, I, I had no idea where you're going to go with it, um, with the title, A Girl's Guide to Missiles. Um, and I was surprised and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I thought it was a very refreshingly honest take on your life and, and growing up in a very interesting circumstance. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, when you look at your book and you read through it, you clearly tell your life story, marking it with geopolitical events, whether we're talking about serious weapon systems all the way to sort of the Reagan presidency and so on and so forth. Um, but you start the book, uh, frankly, with a bang, uh, forgive the pun, um, where you and your mom are actually visiting China Lake again, and you're, you're, you're walking along um, in the actual uh, one of the test centers. Yes, uh, that's the scene where the guide warns us not to pick up any unexploded ordnance that we might see around. And, <laughs> and there's a, a bunch of tourists that, that come in, uh, it's one of the few ways people can get on the base and photographers love to go there and take pictures of a petroglyph canyon. And so they were all rather shocked by this information. And my mom and I just kind of chuckled because we're used to living on the base. Also interesting, you, you, you kind of initially delve in sort of the background of your family, which is pretty uh, interesting, if you don't mind kind of expounding on that just a little bit. So my dad and my mom met in Seattle. Uh, my mom's from Minnesota. My dad's from Michigan. My dad was a was in World War II. He was a navigator in World War II, and he went to school on the GI Bill because of that and became an aerospace engineer. And so they were married in Seattle and had us two kids. My dad got laid off because Boeing laid off 30% of its workforce in the 19, in 1970. And so when we left Seattle, they actually had a sign up that said, a billboard that you see when you drive away that said, "When will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? 
And, uh, and we ended up in, in China Lake because of that, because my dad was unemployed for six months and was sort of desperate for a job. And so that's, that's how we got there. You know, I think one of the interesting things when I read your book that I identified with sort of being a veteran myself was this perspective on war that you write about consistently throughout the book. And especially initially as working for the defense industry, and you talk about war sort of driving business and being good for home life sort of being this thing. And for a lot of people, I think that can be striking and it's different where, you know, you have this very specific, you know, war is not just this sort of abstract, terrible thing. It's actually looked at very differently when, when you're in that. It's part of your livelihood, if you will. Yes. I mean, and it was the whole, it was like a company town we lived in. So the whole, the whole town lived or died based upon whether there were wars going on and we were selling weapons um, and it was whether it was expanding or shrinking. That had a big impact, on, I think, on the thinking of people in the town. For me, it was a little bit different because I was just a kid. And so one of the main you know, conflicts in the book is that I don't really understand what war is. And parents don't like to talk to their children about what war is. So I ended up being very much in the dark for much of my life and and turned into a little, you know, spy trying to figure out what my parents were doing on the base. And and I think ultimately that's what resulted in this book. And I had to rely on not only my parents, because they wouldn't really talk, but I snuck around and found some of their notes. And uh, then I went to the National Archives. And that's why there's a lot of history in my book is because I pieced together the, the historical information too, just a, a way of getting access to what was going on where I grew up. One of your summer internships, if I if I get this correctly, was spent in the payroll office, and you start to talk with a former Marine, or he actually might be he still was a Marine at the time. Excuse me, yeah. but as you as you get to know him, you know his perspective on Korea also starts to I would say maybe enlighten or inform your perspective on war. Yeah, he was a great guy. I went, I always wondered if he's uh, still alive or if he read my book. Uh, he was so nice to me because I was I was a very shy, introverted kid, and he was just would storm in and just start jabbering away, uh, and talked a lot about like a lot of vets do. They well, you know, some like to talk about it, some don't. My dad talked about his war experiences constantly. This man needed to talk about his war experiences, I think. And you know, I'm a teenager. And I was hearing these like horrifying stories about what went on during the Korean War, um, you know. But he was telling them almost like funny stories, so it to entertain a younger person. So it was a very, you know, interesting introduction into like, ah, that's what we're doing here. Because we never talked about my mom and dad. If if anything, I just knew they made missiles, but it was so abstract because we didn't talk about. Vietnam or what was going on there. Part of the book is telling the story of your perspective on war. At first, as you say, as a child, you really didn't know or it was filtered through your parents. You start to see the other side of that perspective in university life. And, and you start to change your opinions sort of and, and grow up around that to a certain level. And, and really, I would, from my point of view, change your perspective to a certain degree. Oh, yeah. I flipped to the total opposite side. Because not only where I grew up, it was not only a military base, but I grew up in a a small subset of that, which was a Southern Baptist school where we, I basically sat in these three-sided cubicles all day long and learned from packets of accelerated Christian education. So 
I w- which is what they were called. So I wasn't socialized um, much and everything seemed secret and weird and I didn't understand what was going on. At the same time, I had a happy childhood, so it's confusing. When I went away to college, it really blew my mind, everything that's happening all around me. And I, I, I just learned to adapt to different cultures, I guess I would say. So wherever I went, I would like adapt and try to feel try to act like I'm fitting in. Well, I end up in Eugene, Oregon, which is like absolutely anti-war pacifist, you know, kind of hippie university at the time. And I'm, you know, out there marching against wars. And so it's like, uh, and I wouldn't call my parents because I didn't even know how to explain any of this to them. I just thought like, oh, I've become this rebel. Well, you just mentioned there in your answer a little bit, you know, most children grow up knowing exactly what their parents do, at least on, on a basic level. And I have a couple of family friends as well who, who uh, grew up around Los Alamos. But growing up as a child and not being able to talk to your parents about what they do professionally, what's that like? Frustrating. I was very frustrated as a child. Um, I was very precocious. I always wanted to know everything that's going on, ask constant questions, and they, I felt like they couldn't tell me. Um, and and it's, it wasn't only the uh, the military thing or the top secret thing, though that was probably the biggest part of it. But it was also they're, they're Scandinavian and Scandinavians don't like talk much anyway. So it aren't super emotional. So it could feel like beating my head against a wall, you know, and I felt like that I was the too emotional person in the family, even though I was hardly at all, I think. So, yeah, it was frustrating. I And it, it really spurred me into this book, I think, was in me from like really early on, because just that the idea that I have to find out somehow. You know, eventually the, the National Archives were able to get a lot of your parents' paperwork. What was that process like about sort of putting your parents' life back together and sort of doing detective work to figure out what they used to do? Uh, and actually, the National Archives didn't give me my parents' paperwork because the DOD only declassifies things after 30 years. So I got all the way up to like 1970, which is when we moved there. And then they just stopped. Oh, really? And so I was like, ah, but I was able to read. I mean, I, I became obsessed. I read the whole, everything in that archive about China Lake because it was so fascinating, especially about the people who worked on the Sidewinder missile before me. And I, you know, I ran into a lot of really interesting characters. Like one of them was the guy who was obsessed with global warming, who, who had his funding cut off and, it had to go back to working on the Sidewinder. Howie Wilcox is his name. But so anyway, that was a bit frustrating. Um, but I got more of my information from my parents, actually, because my dad, my dad got Alzheimer's and he started letting things out that maybe he shouldn't be talking about. That was one way. And I started just pumping my mom for information And the older she got, the less concerned she seemed to be in terms of talking about it. And she told me these crazy stories, like out of the blue, like that one story where she said she put the missile in her trunk and drove to L.A. (laughs) Well, it was just the missile nose. But uh, and she was so terrified. Her hands turned white. They lost their blood. And so she stopped at a mall to go shopping. 
it's it's always funny to me, like when you work on a job like that, that's very unique. Everyone I've ever met who's been in this field, whatever you want to call it, has a story like that where for whatever reason they're doing something ridiculous like having a missile cone in the back of their car. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just yeah. <laughs> it's weird how, how, how jobs work out that way sometimes. Um, but she didn't know. Like She's like, what would I have told the cops if it gotten robbed? <laughs> Ignore the missile in the back. Don't worry. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and I guess it should be said that your father worked on the Sidewinder and your mother um, mostly worked on Tomahawk missiles. That's correct? Yes. The Tomahawk specifically, you know, you still see that weapon system used consistently to this day. And I was just curious yeah. how you could, you know, when you see that happen with sort of U.S. strikes in Syria, for example, um, a couple of years back, does that give you a reaction? Does that make you sort of reflect on that in some sort of way? Um, my mom and I both will kind of go, oh, that's cool, which is just the, rea- you know, it's, it's it's difficult. I think the reaction as a kid was like, oh, it's our weapons or you want them to work. But then every now and then, there was one time when my mom saw a missile that was used by her and it actually it hit a plane where you saw the people parachuting to the ground and I don't think they lived. And that time she cried. And that was when I first, that was the first time I understood that, oh, maybe war isn't all happy and wonderful. If you like the content of today's discussion, Stratfor Worldview is chock full of geopolitical content on topics like security, cybersecurity, the global power competition, and more. To subscribe, visit worldview.stratfor.com. Now, back to the studio. When I was a young military guy, um, you know, getting all that training, you want to go fight. And then when you start to see that human cost, if you will, that, that like a reference to your mom sort of seeing that, that vivid example of what a Tomahawk missile is really doing to people, um, it, it, it definitely sort of checks you up and is that a uh, reality check to what you've been doing. So I, it's, it's interesting to have a professional drive to when be proud of the profession you're in, but then understanding the cost of it can be a, a weird juxtaposition. Yeah. Where, where did you serve, by the way? Uh, I served in the Army, um, 75th Ranger Regiment. What, what country, though, I mean? Oh, I deployed several times. I deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, wow. Intense. Okay. So reflecting back, you know, how, how would you sort of sum up your life in China Lake? Uh, I still love China Lake because I love the desert so much. And it's the most beautiful place in the world. And I still think of it as my home, to be honest. Um, the base has changed a lot since I was a kid. It's become much more fortified. Uh, so it, there's... It's weird that when I go home, you can't just sort of traipse onto the base like I've done my whole life. So I feel sort of cut off from my childhood home. But I, I still think of it as a beautiful place with nice people. And there were good people there. That's the irony. There were good people who the mission of the base was to develop weapons cheaply. And they were, you know, they were civil servants and they were extremely devoted to that. And there were big wars on the base between the civil servants and the contractors who wanted to make a big profit. And that sort of blew up and the contractors won. And now they don't even um, design weapons on the base anymore. So it's sort of sort of sad that that happened. Are they still testing weapons out there? They test them now. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about specifically? I'd sort of open the floor to you if there's some place you'd like to talk about or make sure we point out about your book. No, I think one thing that's been interesting that I've been thinking about lately is this with the impeachment happening now, 
I just, I started reading the impeachment chapters of my book at book readings because I have a, a couple Nixon impeachment chapters. The historical resonances are so fascinating to me because my dad was a big Nixon supporter and it took, but the impeachment took a long time and it was very hard time for the country. And it was hard, I think, in the sense that my dad probably millions of Americans were having to change their minds because my dad at one point suddenly decided, oh, he's not a good man. And it was when the tapes came out and he heard how he really talked. And so anyway, there's all these sort of deja vus happening for me now um, that are interesting. But I really appreciated sort of your ability to tell your life, your personal life story through these geopolitical events and constantly tie them together. That was interesting to kind of mark big things in history with your life. Karen Piper is the author of A Girl's Guide to Missiles, Growing Up in America's Secret Desert, and also a Worldview subscriber. Uh, Karen, I'd really like to thank you for being on the Strap 4 podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this. Iraq and Iran, but there's probably not time for that. <laughs> I have nowhere to be for a while, so if you have any questions for me, I'm happy to talk about it. Were you in uh, northern Iraq station? No. Um, I, so I the unit I was Iraq, in. So. Oh, where, where have you been in Iraq? Uh, just, no, just the Kurdish part. Uh, that was in 2008. It was safe. So, yeah, I, just, I was wondering when you were there and where. I was there in 2008, but I was in Baghdad. Um, so uh, my unit or deployed in, in really short stints, but a lot. So I did four deployments to Iraq, um, and I did four deployments to Afghanistan total. So I did eight total in my eight years that I was in the Army. They, they weren't like the 18-monthers. These were like three to six months usually. And I so didn't know they did that. Okay. Yeah, for certain units, it's just a different approach to try not to burn out people too much. Um, but in, frankly, in its own way, it sort of burns you out because you're just your whole life is rotating in and out very quickly. And in fact, when you talked about sort of um, going from college back to the base and doing those internships and how that was sort of uh, uh, jumping between two different worlds, yeah. that is a very that's something that resonated with me oh, a lot yeah. because. I was jumping from deployments back to civilian life, back to deployments on these six month hops. And it's so surreal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like it would be within 24, 48 hours. Surreal is the right word. Um, it, it's hard to explain that to people. To answer your question, I was in Baghdad twice, and then I was also in Ramadi twice. And what was your job? Uh, so I was infantry. So I was in infantry platoon. So I grew up through the ranks. I was enlisted. So uh, I started out as just a, a rifleman um, and was a, you know, machine gunner, team leader, squad leader, all that fun stuff. Uh, the, the mission set that we had mostly was uh, targeting high-value individuals, um, high-value targets. Okay, okay. Did you like Baghdad? Or do you get to even see any of it when you're in the military? You know, um, I didn't get to see much of it. Um, I got to see more of Baghdad than, than you know, probably the rest of my deployments. But, you know, they kept us, you know, we were on reverse schedules. Uh, so we only went out at night. So I, my vision of Iraq and Afghanistan, frankly, is through a green hue oh, no. um, looking through night vision goggles. going out at night. That's amazing. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> so I think my perspective on that space is uh, different. I heard it's a beautiful city. I wanted to go down there, but obviously it was too dangerous for me to go alone at that time. So, but you were there. Well, the snapshots I did get during the day, it is pretty. It's a really neat city. And, and you know, I actually hope to go back one day and I, I hope you do too. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get to go get up to Kurdistan? No, I've never been to Kurdistan. Um, the farthest north I ever went, I think was 
No, not even close, to be honest. Oh, you got to check that out. It's so gorgeous up there. It's these green mountains and red poppies and totally different, I think. Yes, um, it, it's definitely much more um, open and, and deserty, if you will, down south. Yeah. Unless you're around the rivers. Yeah, see, I would love to see those rivers, though. But so, uh, I mean, I saw them in southeast Turkey, but... So are you done now? I am. I've been here at Stratfor for about eight years. Um, so I've been a civilian for that time, and I'm, I'm not – I entertained re-enlisting for a while there. But, uh, no, I have uh, came back, finished my college degree, and I've been working here ever since. Yeah, okay. Like your dad, I took advantage of the GI Bill. and. Uh, oh, uh, good for you. Okay. Parlayed it into something yeah, else. Yeah, that's a great thing. Have you been following the serious stuff? Of course, very closely, all the time. Or, or have you been to Syria, or do you have a, a connection to it? Any no, sort of not Syria, but um, – I spent about a month in Iraq and then all along the Syrian border in Turkey. Okay. Just so southeast Turkey where all the Kurds are and going up to the border with Iraq and yeah, just in this whole southeast. So it's like I could see Syria from my hotel. And I just got a sense for the people there, like just fell in love with the Kurds. So that's the hard part. I well, love um, chatting to vets and seeing this. Yeah. Again, Karen, it was really nice meeting you. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, you too. Take care. For more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Faisal Pervez. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.